Good to see all of you. Glad to see you're in such a festive spirit. My name is Robert. I'm one of the pastors here at Redemption Hill. And you know what? This morning, let's just continue our time together in prayer, and then we will jump into God's word together. Let's pray. Lord, you've said that every last bit of your word has been breathed out by you. And every last bit of your word is profitable for teaching us, for correcting us, for training us in righteousness that each and every single one of us may be competent, may be equipped for every good work that you've prepared in advance for us to do, even more so to make us wise unto salvation that comes through your son, Jesus Christ. And we ask this morning that your word would do the very thing you promised it would do, that it would make us wise unto salvation that we would find ourselves understanding, trusting, and delighting in your son Jesus more and more. We ask this, Lord, for your glory and our joy. Amen. Amen. I I didn't come out of the womb a pastor. Uh, I didn't spend the better part of my uh, youth as a Christian uh, or even my my early 20s. In, In fact, in college, I lived in a house with a, a group of teammates. There were six of us in there. Um, and in our main recreation room, it was a bit of a wild house, in our main recreation room downstairs, uh, there was this giant poster that one of my roommates had put in a frame. And unlike most posters that you'll find in houses made up of guys like us, uh, this poster had no pictures. It was just words. Uh, words in a frame. But when you got up close and you looked at this poster, you could see the title. And the title of the poster written in a little bold font but not very distinguishable from the rest said 365 reasons to celebrate. And as you got yourself even closer to the poster, you saw that there were 365 days listed out on the poster. And next to every single day, there was a historical or cultural reason why, given no matter what you had gone through that day, you could celebrate. So if you came home from a bad day of practice, uh, came home from a bad game, came home having failed an exam, uh, came home with a broken heart, uh, have no fear. You could go to the poster. And on that very day, that poster would remind you there was a reason why in the midst of all you were going through, you could actually throw down and celebrate. Because on that day, though your heart had been broken, the modern toilet was introduced to humanity. <laughs> And we all love the toilet. And so no matter what you were going through, there was a reason for you to be festive. And the better part of my early 20s was spent in a very festive mood. Uh, Many thanks given to that poster uh, that dawned the recreation room of our house. It wasn't one of the high points of my life, but um, it did help guarantee that I spent a lot of time at least trying to be festive um, out of an attempt to avoid what was going on in the rest of my life. Um, And I say this not because I'm proud of any of that. Um, I say it because I'm not sure that you're actually aware, or if you knew this, but God's people, especially in the Old Testament, uh, they spent a great deal of their time each and every single year in a very festive mood, in a very festive celebration, in a series of feasts and festivals, not that they created on their own to try to celebrate something, but that God actually commanded them to observe, that God actually wove into their life. I mean, whether you believe me or not, God gave his people a calendar of sorts that would organize their year, that would kind of structure their life around a series of celebrations. 
a series of feasts and a series of festivals. And you'll find the introduction of these in Leviticus chapter 23. If you want to go ahead and open up there, we're going to spend our last week of Adventicus 2012, our Advent season in the book of Leviticus, here in Leviticus chapter 23. And we're going to look at a series of sacred assemblies, sacred festivals, sacred feasts that God gave his people to structure their life and why he did it and how, in a sense, they, like the tabernacle, the sacrifices, and the priesthood are simply a shadow that points us back to the reality of the fullness of Jesus Christ. So Leviticus chapter 23, here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna introduce them, and I'm gonna try to move quick to them because there's one in particular that I wanna try to get to, and what we're gonna do is we're gonna look at them in the shadow, we're gonna point to the reality, and then we're gonna keep moving. So Leviticus chapter 23, verse one, the Lord spoke to Moses, and he said, speak to the Israelites and tell them, these are my appointed times, the times of the Lord that you will proclaim as sacred assemblies. And so if you just scan chapter 23 with your eyes, if you've got a Bible with you, you'll see bold heading most likely in your Bible that will break this chapter up. And you can see that there are seven of these feasts or seven of these festivals. Some people count them as eight, depending upon how they combine certain ones. And I'll kind of mention that to you as we go through, but there were seven festivals or seven feasts that organized their calendar and their year. And the purpose of these festivals these feasts and celebrations was not nearly as trivial or mundane as the poster that was in my house in college. Uh, The term sacred assemblies, what you see written there is a word that suggests that this is a, a feast and a celebration in a sense that has a religious purpose. It's one infused with hope. You see, remember, Israel is still camping there at the base of Mount Sinai after God had redeemed them from slavery in Egypt and brought them out where he met with them on the mountain and Moses went to speak with him and God gave him instructions for all these shadows that we've been looking at, the tabernacle, the priests, and the system of sacrifices and these festivals. God is still giving these instructions to Israel. They're still newly redeemed people right there at the base of the mountain and God gives them this new calendar, this new structure for their life and he established it so that it would help them commemorate every single year, multiple times throughout the year to remember and commemorate what God had done for them in the past, who he was for them in the present, but at the same time, just like everything else we've already looked at in Leviticus, it was there to cultivate in them a growing sense of hope, a growing longing and a growing desire for what was to come. They were rehearsals for how God was going to fulfill these things in the fullness in time when his son Jesus would come. They looked back on the past. They remembered the past. They acknowledged God in the present and they cultivated a longing for the future. These festivals gave God's people a real and and tangible taste of redemption, of the fullness of redemption that would come when the Messiah would come centuries later. And it would cultivate in them a taste and a longing for the hope for the fuller revelation that was yet to come. Uh, These things simply, just like those others, were shadows pointing back to the reality that would come in Jesus. In fact, let me just give you a reminder of this. In Colossians chapter two, you don't have to turn there, the apostle Paul was writing to the church and he spoke specifically about these festivals and feasts. So we've seen how in the New Testament, they speak specifically about everything else we've looked at and the sacrifices and the priesthood and the tabernacle. Now Paul's gonna talk specifically about these festivals and here's what he said. This is not gonna be new information for you. Paul said, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. And you'll understand a little bit more about what that means in just a minute. Why? For these are a shadow of the things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. The festivals are shadows that are directly connected to the reality 
the substance that is Jesus. And what we've seen as we've been tracking this story, God's redemptive story throughout the Bible, what we've seen in particular, we've been tracking these shadows through the book of Leviticus, is that the entire Bible, and we'll see it more and more as we keep going this year, the entire Bible is about Jesus. He's the main character. He is the one singular reality whose shadow is cast back over the entirety of the Old Testament. The shadow that points directly to the day in which he would come. His incarnation, his birth in Bethlehem of Judea, the time that we celebrate this time of year, Christmas. His shadow, the shadow of the reality and the substance that is Jesus appeared to Israel, and we've seen it in the tabernacle. It appeared to Israel in the sacrifices. It appeared to Israel in the priesthood. It appears to Israel in these festivals. And each and every single one of them was cultivating and awakening and evoking in them a growing desire an expectation about the promised Messiah that God had promised Israel way back in the beginning in Genesis chapter three, if you remember that part of the story, and the fullness of the redemption that he would bring. So let's look at chapter 23. Let's track these shadows. Let's track these shadows back to the substance that's actually casting them over Israel's life. Let's track them back and see snippets, just pictures of how Jesus becomes the fullness of these things. It's, it's fun. I wish we could go in depth, but there's too many of them. We don't have the time, but let's start in verse three. The first one is the Sabbath. Verse three, work may be done for six days, but on the seventh day there must be a Sabbath of complete rest, a sacred assembly. You're not to do any work. It's a Sabbath to the Lord wherever you live. So in a sense, this is the most foundational, um, the most important, in a sense, assembly that God is gonna give his people. The rest of the ones that we're gonna look at are going to occur once a year. This one's actually gonna occur once a week. And in fact, there are many Sabbaths. There's not just one Sabbath, there's many Sabbaths, it's plural. They were to be held every seventh day, once a week, every seventh year, and in the year of Jubilee, which by God's grace we'll get to before we close today, which is kind of in a sense the Sabbath of Sabbaths, a year-long celebration that's following seven years, a cycle of seven years of Sabbaths. So there were many Sabbaths that Israel would have to observe in this calendar that God was giving them, but the primary aspect of this Sabbath was a time of remembering. On this day, they were supposed to remember. If you remember back to how we learned about this Sabbath in the book of Exodus, this is what God said. He said, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day, and therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day, and he made it holy. So every seven days, God's people had to physically renounce their sense of autonomy and dominion over their own time. Every seven days, they had to let go of their sense of ownership and control over their time. Every seven days, they had to acknowledge that they weren't in control. They didn't dominate their day. God was the one who had control and dominion over their life and over their order of their day. Every seven days, men and animals had to rest. And as they rested, they remembered that in the beginning when God created all things, work wasn't meant to be toilsome. In the beginning, work was a blessing from God and it wasn't meant to be hard and excruciating labor. In the beginning, it was created and it was good. In fact, in chapter 25 of Leviticus, we won't have time to spend there this morning, you read about the Sabbath year. And in the Sabbath year that God would ordain, even then the land had to be given a rest. 
Not only did the people and the animals have to take a rest every single week, remembering that they're not the ones in control over their life and over their time. Every Sabbath year, the land had to be given a rest. And as the land was given a rest, the people would have to trust that God would provide. He continued to be who he has been for them, that he will provide, even though they're giving the land a break this year. And as they would give the land a break that year, and in obedience to God, observe this Sabbath year, they'd be reminded that even in the beginning, when God created all things, ah, oh, the land, it produced exactly what God called it produced, to produce. No thorns and no thistles. It in itself had once been good as well. But in Deuteronomy chapter five, which we'll get to the book of Deuteronomy in just a few weeks, in Deuteronomy chapter five, we see another aspect of the Sabbath mentioned uh, that the people were supposed to remember and to recall. On the Sabbath day, they were supposed to spend time remembering God's gracious deliverance of them out of slavery from Egypt. And as they rehearsed in their minds and remembered what God had done and who they were and how he had done it, again, in them was cultivated a longing, a desire for the fullness of redemption that God had promised in the garden. The day would come when the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. When God would finally bring one who would make all that sin had destroyed, he would make right again. In them, as they celebrated and rehearsed God's deliverance every single week, not only would they remember who God was, who he was for them now in the present, but that longing, that anticipation, that expectation would continue to be cultivated in their life. The Sabbath weekly looked back. It acknowledged God in the present, but it still tilted his people forward. It still angled them forward in hope to the time when God would bring true rest. This was just weekly rest, but there was a time when God promised that he would bring true rest. Now, we don't have time to unpack all of this in the New Testament and how this shadow pointed in the fullness of it in the New Testament, but in Hebrews chapter four, Hebrews chapter four speaks of an eternal rest, a true rest that God has provided and will provide for his people to come. It's actually called a Sabbath rest. And we have a taste of this Sabbath rest now. And we can taste this Sabbath rest now and live in that Sabbath rest for eternity because of our faith in the person and work of Christ. But what is this Sabbath rest now and in the future actually a rest from? Let me just kind of mention this to you. To Israel, a Sabbath was a weekly test that basically would ask them, do you trust God? I mean, think about it. In an agricultural society to say, you have to rest and not work. Every Sabbath year, for a year. You couldn't till on the land, you had to let it be. Every week, and then in that particular year, that particular Sabbath year, you're being asked, do you trust God? Is he going to provide? Can you stop? Can you just sit? I mean, can you remember who he was, who he is, and what he's promised? Can you just trust him? And not only was it a weekly test to them about whether or not they can trust God to be who he's been and who he is, it was a declaration in the nations around them, this God is worth trusting. This God is so great, we in obedience to him because of who he is, we cease, we can trust him. We can do this because of who he is. It was a test and it was also a declaration, which is not too different than the gospel is for you and I. See, you and I, we can't work our way into salvation. We can't do enough things for God. We can't do enough good things, obey enough rules. We talk about this all the time here. We can't work our way into salvation. No amount of law keeping or service can earn it. Our salvation depends entirely upon God's grace. You and I have to trust someone outside of ourselves for salvation. And when we do, we finally get a sense, just a a taste of what real rest and real peace is. 
When we trust the person and work of Jesus Christ in our place for our, for our salvation, we, we taste just the beginnings of what this true Sabbath rest is. We, we cease from having to work to earn any kind of approval from God. We cease to have to actually worry about whether or not God still approves of us. Does he love us? Is he angry at me now? Has he removed his love from me? Now in the gospel, in the person and work of Jesus Christ, when our faith is placed in him, we actually get a taste now of this Sabbath rest that God has promised that his people will live in for all of eternity. That's real rest and that's real peace. And it only comes through Jesus. And there's still so much more to come. We've talked throughout this Advent season of how you and I, even here now, 21st century, 2012, we're still an Advent people. So much of Advent is spent looking at how Israel longed for Christ to be born and we celebrate it in Christmas, but we're still longing for him to return. When the fullness of what he's promised finally comes to completion. And there is more for us to long for. We get to taste this Sabbath rest now because of the gospel the striving from works to earn approval from God because of our faith in Christ, but there's still more. There's still an eternal Sabbath rest in his presence still to come for those of us who have placed their faith in Christ. This, this is just a taste, a, a snippet of the shadow of the Sabbath that finds its fullness and its promise in the person and work of Christ, but we gotta keep going. There's still so much more. Uh, the next one, verse four. Look at this. It says, these are the Lord's appointed times. The sacred assemblies you are to proclaim at their appointed times. Now here's the next one. The Passover to the Lord comes in the first month at twilight on the 14th day of the month. Now the Passover we've talked about before, it finds its roots back in Exodus chapter 12 in the story of God redeeming his people out of slavery from Egypt. Remember God told them to take a lamb and he gave them instructions for this particular lamb. It had to be a particular type of lamb and they were to slaughter the lamb and they were to eat the lamb in a particular way but they were to take the blood of that lamb and they were to paint it on the doorpost of their home at night. And that night, the angel of the Lord was gonna pass through the land. And when he saw a home with the blood of that lamb painted on the doorpost, he would pass over that home. But if that home didn't have the blood of that lamb painted on the doorpost, the angel of the Lord would visit that home and take the life of the firstborn. This is what God called Israel to remember in the Passover. The Passover. Closely related to the Passover, because we're gonna keep going, we're gonna tie some things together in a second. Closely related to the Passover, but often kind of clumped in it as one festival or one ceremony you find in verse six is the festival of unleavened bread. Look at verse six. The festival of unleavened bread of the Lord is on the 15th day of the same month. So Passover is on the 14th. Unleavened bread is on the 15th, the very next day. For seven days, you must eat unleavened bread. And on the first day, you're to hold a sacred assembly. You're not to do any daily work. So there's that Sabbath principle again. A sacred assembly, consecrated to God. No daily work. You're to present a fire offering to the Lord for seven days. On the seventh day, there will be a sacred assembly. You must not do any daily work. Again, you find the details about this particular festival, the festival of unleavened bread, and its roots back in Exodus chapter 12. This was when God told the people not to take the time to leaven their bread because they were in a hurry to leave Egypt as God would lead them out of Egypt and across the sea and into the land that he was taking them. So he told them not to take the time to leaven the bread to make the bread without leaven. So Passover is on the 14th. Unleavened bread is on the 15th, it's Sabbath. And then look at the next one, verse nine. Then the Lord spoke to Moses. Speak to the Israelites and tell them, when you enter the land I'm giving you and reap its harvest, 
You are to bring the first sheath of your harvest to the priest. So remember, God's ordering their life and he's ordering the structure of their calendar and he's ordering it not only around remembering who he is in the past and now in the present and who he will be for them in the future, he's doing it around the life they live in their agricultural calendar. So here we are at the beginning of the barley harvest. And they're bringing the first fruits of this barley harvest as a way of saying thanks, of gratitude to God for who he is and how he's provided. This is the spring part of the calendar. It's ordering their, their life. Look at verse 11. After he brings this first sheath of harvest to the priest, he'll wave the sheath before the Lord so that you may be accepted. And the priest is to wave it on the day after the Sabbath. So Friday is Passover. Saturday is the Sabbath, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The next day is the day of the Feast of First Fruits. You see it right there referred in verse 11 when it says to wave it on the day after the Sabbath. That was the day before. That was the day of unleavened bread. These three feasts, Passover, unleavened bread, and First Fruits were all in a row. Now, let's just look at how these shadows take us back and give way to the reality. Just snapshots of how they give way to the reality in Christ. The last few weeks I've made you hear it all, build up, and then do it. We're just gonna go each one. We're just gonna see how it finds its fulfillment in Christ. Uh, how does Passover find its fulfillment, find its reality in the person and work of Jesus? Do you remember that when Jesus came to begin his ministry to John the Baptist to be baptized, in the very beginning of the ministry that he will have for the next few years, John the Baptist saw him coming, and what did he say? He said, here comes the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world. Jesus will become our Passover lamb who will shed his blood so the destruction of God's wrath will not come and visit our house. Jesus was actually crucified on that cross on Passover night. The last meal that he celebrated with his disciples, the, the one where which we take the time that we celebrate every single week in communion, that last meal that Jesus had with his disciples was actually a Passover Seder meal. This was the meal that God had given Israel to, to have every single year at the Passover. In John chapter 19, I want you to see how all these things tie up. John chapter 19, verses 31 through 36. Let me go there, I'm gonna read this for you. John 19, just listen to this. Since it was the day of preparation, and so the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for Sabbath was a high day, so Jesus was crucified on Passover, it's Friday, Sabbath is coming. And they don't want the bodies to remain on the crosses on the Sabbath because they're preparing on Friday for the Sabbath the next day. So here's what the Jews do. They ask Pilate that the legs might be broken and they might be taken away. So one way to speed up the death process and crucifixion was to break people's legs so they couldn't lift themselves up to relieve the pressure on their chest and be able to breathe. You break their legs, the asphyxiation and the suffering happens much quicker and they die much quicker. And so the Jews came to Pilate and said, can you just break their legs so that they can die? so we can get them off the cross before the Sabbath because we don't want them on the cross for the Sabbath because there was a curse for everything that hung on a tree because of the law, so let's keep going. So the soldiers, they came and they broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him, talking about Jesus. But when they came to Jesus, they saw he was already dead. They didn't break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with the spear and at once there came out blood and water. And he who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true. And he knows that he's telling the truth, that you may also believe. Now listen to this, verse 36. For these things took place, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. That goes back to Exodus chapter 12, when God said that the Passover lamb that the people were to eat and celebrating this Passover meal, you shouldn't take any of the flesh outside of the house, God said. And he also said in Exodus 12, 46, you can't break any of its bones. 
So John directly ties Jesus to this Passover lamb right here in in John 19, 36. And in verse 37, it says, and again, another scripture says, they will look on him who they have pierced. John is directly tying Jesus back to this Passover lamb, showing that the shadow that was there in the festival is being fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus. Jesus now has become the Passover lamb of, of God for us whose blood has been shed. That by faith in him, the wrath of God would pass over us. Jesus has become our Passover lamb. But what about that feast of unleavened bread? Flip back over to John chapter six. I'm not sure how many of these are gonna come up on the screen. I don't remember how many I put up there because there's a lot of them. Flip back to John 6. You're already in John 19. John chapter 6, verse 4. What does it actually say? Verse 4 says, Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. So we're at the Passover time. The Passover festival. People have pilgrims into Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. They're going to be there in Jerusalem to celebrate Passover, unleavened bread, and then first fruits. Now look at verse 22 of John 6. It says, on the next day. So it's Passover Friday. Verse 22 says, on the next day, which is what feast? Unleavened bread follows Passover the next day. Everybody's there to celebrate the festival. What does the heading in your Bible say that these verses are about? The bold heading in your Bible gives you a clue. Do you have Bibles? The bold heading in your Bible right there tells you that Jesus is about to talk about how he is the true bread of life. And on this feast day, this day of unleavened bread, Jesus is gonna declare to the people that he is the bread of life without the leaven of sin. He is the true bread of life, the manna of heaven that's been given to God for the life of his people. Listen to what he says in verse 47 of John chapter six. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in wilderness and they died. God fed them with miraculous food in the wilderness, but they still died. They still died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that no one, so that so one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give for the life of the world is my body. Jesus has declared now to the people that he is the true bread of life. The unleavened bread the people ate, they still died, though God supplied it for them. No, now he has come. And he has fulfilled that. The shadow has pointed back to the reality of the substance that is the person and the work of Jesus. So what about first fruits? First fruits catches its impact when you remember how all the festivals work together. Friday was what? Passover. Saturday was what? Unleavened bread. What happened on that day? What was Jesus doing on that day? after he was crucified. What was he doing on the day after he was crucified? He was dead. He was dead. The next day, the feast of first fruits, you realize they wanted the bodies down, remember? They didn't want them up there on the Sabbath day, that Saturday, that unleavened bread day. So here they come to the feast of first fruits, now on Sunday. What did Jesus do on that day? Do you remember? He died on Friday on the cross. He's dead on Saturday. What did he do the next day, the day of the feast of first fruits? He rose from the dead. 
Jesus rose from the grave on the feast of first fruits. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Apostle Paul is trying to convince this church in Corinth that because Jesus rose bodily from the grave, you and I can place our faith and our, faith and our hope in the fact that one day we too, along with him, will rise from the dead bodily to live forever in eternity with God. And he's telling the people that if you don't believe that Jesus rose bodily from the grave, if you don't believe that he actually was resurrected from the dead in body, your faith is futile. It's pointless. Because if he's still dead, what's there left to really believe in? But no, he did. He rose. He defeated death. He rose bodily from the grave. And in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20, Paul says this. He says, but in fact, Christ Jesus has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Jesus Christ rose from the dead, defeating Satan's sin and death on the first day of the feast of first fruits, declaring a harvest of the resurrection that was yet to come. It's as though God the Father was literally waving the resurrected body of his son Jesus as that first fruit sheath of what's still to come, of what we still have to long for and look forward to. There's so much more than this world. Those who have placed their faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ, God has declared on this feast of first fruits because of the resurrection of his son and the waving declaration of Jesus having conquered death and sin and Satan in our place that those who place their faith in him have so much more. His resurrection was just the first fruit. Each and every single one of us because of him can not only hope but know that one day we will rise bodily from the dead to be with him. It's the feast of first fruits, just a shadow, but it finds its substance and its reality and its fullness in the person and work of Jesus. But we gotta keep going. Back to Leviticus chapter 23. These are fun, these are fun. There's so much more in these. I'm just giving you a taste. I mean, again, somebody said we should spend some time maybe in the next year doing a sermon series on all the things that I've said. If we just had more time to talk about, we would do it. <laughs> if we just had more time, you could just give a week to each of these feasts. I'm just giving you a taste. I mean, I'm not even really painting the fullness of all these things, just giving you a taste to see how they just trace themselves back to Jesus who cast a shadow back over these things. Hopefully you'll go find these things out more for yourself, but we gotta keep going. Leviticus 23, look at verse 15. The Feast of Weeks. That you're to count seven complete weeks starting from the day after the Sabbath, the day you brought the sheath of presentation offering. You were to count 50 days until the day after the seventh Sabbath and then present an offering of new grain to the Lord. Now, most of us know this particular feast by its Greek name. Do you know what that is? There's a hint in the verses there. It's 50 days. Pentecost. Most of us know this by the Greek name Pentecost. This is the 50th day from the first day of the Feast of First Fruits. This is the second big pilgrimage the people of Israel would have to make. They'd come into Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. While they were there, they'd celebrate unleavened bread and the first fruits, and then most of the time they would go back to their homes. But then they had to come back to Israel to Jerusalem again to celebrate this particular feast, the Feast of Weeks, or the Feast of Pentecost. This was at the end of the barley season and the beginning of the wheat season. So it was a time of thankfulness and a time again of first fruits from a new harvest of wheat. You see it right here in verse 17. It says, bring two loaves of bread from your settlements as a presentation offering, each of them made with four quarts of fine flour. Now the wheat's in. The wheat's coming in, you're harvesting it. And you can use it and you're gonna bring it as a first fruit to the Lord. Made from four quarts of flour, baked with yeast as first fruits to the Lord. And if you read on, keep reading, you'll see they have sin offerings and burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. It's a sacred assembly. They have to cease from doing work. 
So 50 days after the first day of the Feast of First Fruits, and what had just happened on the Feast of First Fruits, what did we just say happened? Jesus rose from the grave, right? You tracking? Died on Passover, in the grave, in the tomb, unleavened bread. First day of the Feast of First Fruits, God raises him from the dead, waves him in front of the nations as a promise of all that's yet to come. About 50 days later, God's people are supposed to come back to Jerusalem, 50 days to celebrate the Feast of Weeks or what we call Pentecost. Do you remember what happened 50 days after Jesus rose from the grave and the people gathered back together to celebrate the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost? Acts chapter two will tell you the story. Pilgrims all have come back in. People are coming back to Jerusalem. They're gonna celebrate the festival. The disciples are gathering. The pilgrims are gathering. The Jews are gathering from all their scattered regions. This is an appointed feast to celebrate. And as they're all gathering, the Spirit of God falls upon the people. And people begin speaking in languages that are not their own. They begin declaring, Acts chapter two says, the mighty works of God in languages that they don't know, languages they don't naturally speak. And around them were all these devout Jews who were gathering for the festival. And what happened when they heard all this commotion, they came to see what was going on, and they heard these men speaking in their language about the mighty acts of God. And they said, what does this mean? And what happens? Peter stands up. And Peter preaches the first of the greatest gospel sermons preached by the disciples of Christ. Preaches to them, explains to them what is happening. How these mighty works of God have been fulfilled in the person and work of Christ. He preaches the gospel. And 3,000 people on the day of Pentecost get saved. And the church is born on the harvest festival of weeks. Celebrating the harvest that's come and the harvest is to be anticipated of, of wheat, technically. And now God has begun the harvest of souls on this side of the resurrection of Christ. Declared with that first gospel sermon preached by Peter. How neat is it that the church was born on this harvest festival? It's almost as though this is just the first glimmer, first glance at the answering of the prayer that Jesus told his disciples to pray, remember? The harvest is plentiful, it's plentiful. Ask the Lord to send out workers into the harvest. God now drawing his church together, harvesting of souls, faith in the person and work of Jesus now sent out to be his people to declare this same gospel to the nations. It's the feast of weeks, but we gotta keep going. I wish we could keep going. I, I, oh, man. All right, verse 23. Leviticus 23, verse 23. The feast of trumpets. This might be one of my favorite ones because it has a couple different things that it's doing. Feast of trumpets. Verse 23, the Lord spoke to Moses, tell the Israelites in the seventh month, on the first day of the month, so now we're in the seventh month. Now we're gonna move to the fall. Everything else has been in the spring, now we're moving to the fall. In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you're to have a day of complete rest, commemoration, proclaimed, and here's how you're gonna proclaim it. Here's how you're gonna rest and commemorate. You're gonna do that with a blast of trumpets and joyful shouting. It's a sacred assembly. You must not do any daily work, but you must present a fire offering to the Lord. So seventh month starts on the first day with a blast of trumpets, shouts of joy to mark it out as a special month. Now, today in, in contemporary life, this would be the day of Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year. It, it would start with this blast of trumpets and these shouts of joy. So God is marking out for his people something specific about this month. This is gonna be the most holy month. There are gonna be more festivals, more sacred assemblies and more sacrifices in this seventh month than any of the other months in the year. And it starts with this blast of trumpets, which is gonna 
be key here in just a minute. And the next thing you see, this next festival is a day of atonement. Verse 26, the Lord spoke to Moses. The 10th day of this seventh month, so trumpets on the first month, woo! 10th day of this seventh month is a day of atonement. Hold a sacred assembly and practice self-denial. You're to present a fire offering to the Lord. On this particular day, you don't do any work for it's a day of atonement and to make atonement for yourselves before the Lord your God. If any person does not practice self-denial on this particular day, he must be cut off from his people. Verse 30, I will destroy among his people anyone who does any work on this same day. Now, we went into detail last week about the Day of Atonement. If you're a guest with us this morning, I can't go into it in detail this morning. We did a whole week on it last week. But this was the one time in a year when the, high, when the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies with the blood of a sin offering, one goat, into the, into the Holy of Holies, and he would offer that blood on the altar in the place for the forgiveness of Israel's sins. And there would be a second goat involved, if you remember that from last week. And he would lay his hands on that goat and confess the sins of Israel. And the guilt and the condemnation of the sins of the people would be put on that goat, and that goat would be led from the tabernacle out into the wilderness, left alone, the sins of God's people taken away, never to return again. This was God speaking of the forgiveness that was to come because of Christ, ultimately to his people, and the fact that their sins are not only forgiven, but they're forgotten by God. This was the day of atonement. And we saw last week how Jesus fulfilled this, how this shadow pointed back and found its substance in the person and work of Jesus. Remember we read in Hebrews that Jesus entered once for all into the holy places? And not the high priest, like the high priest had to do with an offering for his own sin, but Jesus entered in once for all, not with the blood of bulls and goats, but by means of his own blood, thus securing for us an eternal redemption. We saw how all this worked out and what it meant for us. That was the day of atonement. That was on the 10th day of this seventh month. But the next one, verse 33, is the Feast of Booth. This is a, this is a fun one. The Lord spoke to Moses. He said, tell the Israelites, the festival of booths, the booths, I need to go to like speech class. Booths to the Lord begins on the 15th day of this seventh month and continues for seven days. So now we're on the 15th day of that month. There's to be a sacred assembly on the first day. You're not to do any daily work. You're to present a fire to the offering to the Lord for seven days. And on the eighth day, you're to hold a sacred assembly and present a fire offering to the Lord. It's a solemn gathering. You're not to do any daily work. Look down at verse 39. Here's where it gets a little cheeky. You are to celebrate the Lord's festival on the 15th day of the seventh month for seven days after you've gathered the produce of the land. There will be a complete rest on the first day and a complete rest on the eighth day. On the first day, you're to take the product of majestic trees, palm fronds, boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook, and rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. You're to celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, seven days each year. This is a permanent statute for you throughout your generations. You must celebrate it in the seventh month. You're to live in booths for seven days. All native-born Israel must live in booths so that your generations may know. Remember, it's a remembering that I made the Israelites live in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am Yahweh, your God. Now, this may not have been the most important festival in the life of God's people, but it was certainly the most festive. For those of you that are really interested in these kinds of things, Numbers chapters 28 and 29 are kind of like instruction manuals for the priests on how they're to operate on these particular festival days. And listen to what it says about the sacrifices alone on this particular festival, this time of joyful celebration. Numbers 29, I think in verse 12 and on, gives instructions for this particular festival. And it says, in those seven days, They're to sacrifice 70 bulls, 14 rams, 98 lambs, and then on that eighth day, because remember they came back on that eighth day for another solemn assembly, 
one bull, one ram, excuse me, seven lambs, one bull, one ram, and one goat. Eight days of singing, eight days of palm fronds waving, 192 animals sacrificed to the Lord in eight days. Now, by the time we get to the New Testament, by the time we get to the life of the temple and the life of Christ, there were two things that were added to this festival by the Jews. God did not command them in his word. They added to them as a tradition. And they, they actually play an important role in seeing how this shadow finds its substance in Christ. You see that by the time the New Testament came, uh, there was one tradition where the priest would actually leave the temple and he'd walk out of the wall of Jerusalem, out of the city, and he'd go to the pool of Siloam. And he'd have a basin with him and he would gather water from the pool of Siloam and he would make his way back to the temple and he'd come back to Jerusalem and he'd walk through the water gate. That was a particular gate in the walls of the city of Jerusalem. He'd come through the water gate and he'd make his way through the city back to the temple and he'd get back to the temple. He would pour this water out before the Lord as a sign of thankfulness, as a sign of gratitude, as a sign of declaring God's continued provision for his people. Water was a source of life for them. It sustained life for them, not only for them as people, but for them in their agriculture. It was symbolic of God's blessing on the people. They would read Ezekiel chapter 47 out loud during this particular festival. It was said that there was water flowing from the temple, water that sustained the life of God's people. There'd be many fish and many trees that would fruit along the banks of this river that flowed out from the temple. Trees that wouldn't wither fruit that wouldn't fade. They would read this and celebrate this and not only would it remind them of God's continued provision and faithfulness but remind them specifically of how God had provided water for them while they were in in the wilderness wandering on their way to the promised land. And there was a second thing they added. Not only did this water ceremony occur with the priest but there were these four giant candelabras that were set up as well with candles that were lit, great lights that were lit. These were done to remind the people of Israel that God continued to, deli- to, to guide them and lead them in the wilderness by the pillar of fire at night. He'd provide water for them in the wilderness when they were thirsty. He led them at night in the dark by the great light that would, they would follow. This is what's going on. So, John chapter seven. Let's find this shadow. Let's find how it finds its substance and its reality in Christ. John chapter seven, verse two. What does it say? It says the Feast of Booths was at hand. So here we are, we're back in Jerusalem for the Feast of Booths. Everybody's made their way back to celebrate just as God had commanded them to do, and so here they are. Now look at verse 37. What does the heading in your Bible say about this? Have your Bible, does it have bold heading? What's it say? Oh, come on people. Let's read, verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up. So here, they're in, they're in the, the, the city. Last day of this feast, this, this water ceremony is occurring. Everybody's gathered. The priest has made this majestic stroll out to the pool, filled this basin full of water. You gotta imagine by this time, the pomp and circumstance of all this stuff would be huge. And you know the, the, the condemnation that Jesus spoke about the priests and, and the priesthood during this time. They, they did everything for show. You've got to imagine that by now there was a lot of pomp and circumstance going on. And people were gathering to see the ceremony take place. The priest is making his way back through the land, through the gate, into the temple to pour out this water. And there's Jesus there with the rest of the pilgrims, the rest of the people who have come for the festival. And this is what he says. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up. And he didn't just whisper. He didn't just say John says he cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. 
Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. As the priest would read that prophecy back in Ezekiel that from the temple, that from the throne would flow rivers of living water, which would provide life for God's people. Jesus says, no, 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 no. And believes in me. Out of him will flow rivers of living water. Jesus is declaring his own personal fulfillment of this shadow that God had given his people back in this festival. Now look at John chapter eight. He's not done. You gotta imagine the scene. I mean, again, I haven't told you yet this, this morning. You gotta read this like a human. Put yourself there to celebrate. Biggest part of the day, biggest part of the feast, this water ceremony and these lights. And here's Jesus, who already had a reputation, showing up when this was going on. I would imagine that it was right as if the place got the most silent, and the priest had that water, and he's about to pour it out right there in the temple. Jesus cries out. He cries out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me. Can you imagine that scene? It's great, John chapter eight, verse 12. It says, again, Jesus spoke to them, so he wasn't done. Forget the commotion that comes when he interrupts the water. You can imagine them just kind of motioning to somebody to take care of him. You know, take care of that guy. You know, we gotta keep going where we're going. Again, Jesus spoke to them, and here's what he said. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me, me. Not the pillar of fire in the wilderness, not these candelabras in the temple. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Can you imagine what that must have been like for the people that were standing around there? Shadows just beginning to give their way to the reality. And the substance that cast these shadows back on the life of Israel. And these are just snippets, those are just pictures, just pieces of how they find their home in Jesus. There's one more thing here in Leviticus that I wanna point out, and this is how we're gonna end, because I absolutely love it. And you, you can catch it all by seeing these feasts, but getting to this one. Go to Leviticus chapter 25. Go to chapter 25. This is my favorite. It's not actually a festival or a feast, but it's a year. It's called the year of Jubilee. Leviticus chapter 25, verse eight says this, you shall count seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, so that the time of the seven weeks of years shall give you 49 years. All right, now I don't do numbers. 49 years, all right? Just dig on that one right there. Then you shall sound the, tr- the loud trumpet on the 10th day of the seventh month. What happened on that day, do you remember? What was the 10th day of the seventh month when the trumpet would sound? Atonement, ah, there you go. On the day of atonement, you shall sound the trumpet throughout all of your land, and you shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all of its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. This is a Sabbath of Sabbath of Sabbaths. On the day of atonement, 49 years, when the cycle of sevens had come, on this day of atonement, when the trumpet would sound and everybody in the land knew what was going on on that day, not only did it announce a holy time in God's calendar, in, God's, in the life of God's people, but on that day of atonement, if you remember from last week, it was the most vivid, real, tangible depiction of the pervasiveness of their sin, of the persistence of their guilt, but of the coming fullness of God's grace and forgiveness that will find its home in the person and work of Christ. This was the day that no Israelite could escape the awareness of just how sinful they were. 
just how desperately they needed atonement, just how desperately they needed the sacrifice that God would provide in their place for their sin. Their guilt was right in front of them. They knew the day of atonement. They pilgrimed to Jerusalem to celebrate it. And here's the day that's gonna start it in this 50th year. The trumpets blast. And God says, now declare liberty. And now in the place of where you see that sin, you see your sin, you see your guilt, you understand your need. Now here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna ratchet it up a notch. Now this year, I want you on that day to proclaim freedom. I want you to proclaim liberty. The land will get a break for a year. You read chapter 25, you see that they could only glean from the land what they could get with their hands. They could only get what they could take with their hands, but the land got a rest. During this year, land, well, land couldn't be sold permanently by the people of Israel because it was God's land, it wasn't theirs. They were just tenants of the land. And they had to recognize in this particular year that it was God who provided for them. I mean, can you imagine the trust and the faith? That 49th year, because of the math, was a Sabbath year, so they had to give the land a break. That 50th year was a jubilee year. They had to give it another break. Then that third year where they could actually go back to, to working, they had to trust the harvest would come in. This is three years of trusting God to be who he's promised to be. Can we trust him? Is he faithful? So give the land a break. Gotta give the tenants a break too. You see, throughout the years, throughout these 49 years, there were farmers and people worked the land and some of them weren't very good at it. And they didn't do their job well and weeds would take over their crops or they didn't tend their land well and so they would sell some of their land to, to pay off debt that they had incurred because they weren't able to produce what they needed to produce. They were basically, they were just bad farmers. But in the year of Jubilee, you had to hit the reset button and all that land had to go back to the original owner. And that just seems crazy, doesn't it? If he was a horrible farmer, and he couldn't tend the land because he was just bad at it or because he was lazy. He got in debt, he couldn't take care of his family, so he had to sell it to me so he could take care of his family. Why should I give it back to him? It doesn't make sense if he's not good at it. But here's the thing, there's no bookkeeping in Jubilee. And there's no keeping of records and accounts in Jubilee. They don't try to figure out who's the best at something. It all goes back to the originals. And this just doesn't fit our system. It just doesn't fit our understanding. But this 50th year, when the trumpets sounded, they had to declare that everything was God's. Every single person in the land of Israel was on the same playing field. If you're a debtor, you're free. If you had had to sell yourself into debtor's slavery to someone else because you couldn't take care of yourself or couldn't provide for your family or you couldn't take care of your land, now you're free. It doesn't make sense. It's, I mean, the best I could come up with, it was absolutely illogical. It was unexpected liberty. You were in debt because you couldn't take care of yourself and now you're free. Unexpected liberty, illogical freedom. The New Testament word for that is actually grace. It makes no sense. It's not earned. It doesn't come to the people who deserve it. It comes irrespective of that. It's so illogical. In the year of Jubilee, on the Day of Atonement, the trumpets would blast and there would be great shouts of joy and the rules change. The poor are set free, debts are canceled. No more interest on any loan that an Israelite had made to another Israelite, that loan wiped away. Debtors set free. Unbelievable. Can you even begin to imagine a system like that? I mean, can you even begin to imagine, very real, of a real system that operated like that? 
And here's the thing. I don't know if you ever knew this or not. Some of you scholars may know. We have no record in the history of Israel of them ever celebrating the year of Jubilee. They never did it. They never actually did it. And most, and I would agree, suspect that they never did it because the nature of the human heart always wants to keep score. It always wants to set rules that make people pay for the things they have not done well. And it always wants to set rules that advance those who do things well. We love fairness. And Jubilee isn't fair. Jubilee is illogical. Jubilee is absolutely unmerited grace and liberty and freedom. Jubilee says doesn't play by fairness. Jubilee doesn't play according to those rules. Jubilee doesn't fit our system. It didn't fit the hearts of God's people. They never actually did it. Grace doesn't fit our systems either, does it? Grace doesn't fit our systems of, of desiring to earn God's favor and earn God's approval and have some kind of stake and claim in our own salvation. Jubilee, the year of Jubilee, removed all the rules and God's people just couldn't handle it. Look at Luke chapter four. Here's where we'll we'll finish up because we've got to find the the taste of the substance in this, don't we? Luke chapter four. Verse 16. Jesus is beginning his ministry and he comes to his own hometown in Nazareth. Luke chapter four, verse 16. It says, Jesus came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him and he unrolled the scroll and he found the place where it was written. And the place that he found that he's about to read, that we're about to read, is what was known in the life of Israel as the Jubilee prophecy. This was called the Jubilee prophecy. Here's what Jesus says. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, Jubilee. And he rolled up the scroll. He gave it back to the attendant and he sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And and he began to say to them today, this scripture, Jubilee, on illogical liberty, the year of God's favor on all of creation, on the land, on the people, on the debtors, on all of Israel, the year of the Lord's favor, Jubilee, has been fulfilled. And he wasn't saying that now Jubilee took place in Nazareth right there in that time. No, it was fulfilled in him. You get a sense of this as you begin to watch him move out of this synagogue. And in verse 31, when he goes and there's the demon-possessed man, and the man cries out, and Jesus, Jesus silences the demons, and he delivers this man, and this man is set free. You begin to see the work of the kingdom of God and the year of the Lord's favor fulfilled in Jesus and working its way out through the people as you watch him minister. And he leaves this man who he's now set free from this demon possession that has just wrecked his life for who knows how long. Set free, free, illogical liberty. And he moves on to Peter's mother-in-law's house. And there at Peter's mother-in-law's house, he heals Peter's mother-in-law. She's so overjoyed, so now free from whatever had been binding her physically, whatever suffering she had been enduring, now free because of the work of Jesus Christ. She's so free, she starts to serve Jesus and his disciples. 
in the life and ministry of Jesus, the lame walk, the blind see, the deaf hear, relationships are healed, jubilee is being fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus. And the gospel is an announcement that God in Christ is making right all that sin has made wrong. That God in Christ, the year of the Lord's favor is at hand in and through Christ. And he can fix what sin has made wrong. Jesus is the one who can actually bring healing to your marriage. Bring healing to that relationship. He's the one that can actually do it. If you ever talk to someone who's tasted this grace, who's tasted this illogical liberty, who's tasted this freedom that's come because of Christ, they may still have a limp and a scar, but they have a tangible freedom, joy, a a new life. Jubilee has begun in Christ. We have a taste of it now, but there's so much more to come. There's so much more to come for God's people. One day, the perishable will give way to the imperishable. And when that day comes, no sin will even be present. Nothing to break the joy, nothing to destroy the joy, nothing to restrict the freedom. Just illogical liberty and freedom in the presence of God because of Christ. And as Jesus looked at the people of Israel, his command to them, his invitation to them was repent and believe. You have to believe this freedom for yourself. You have to accept the fact that you are forgiven only by grace. You desperately want some kind of system that will prove how much merit and how much favor you have earned before God because of the life that you have lived, but you have to accept the fact that you are only saved because of the grace of God. Your liberty only has one very undeserved source. Do you believe in the person and work of Jesus Christ? And I'm asking those who are here who call themselves a part of the church, do you believe that you are forgiven? I know for so many of you the thought that first pops into your head is, I don't think so. I'm just simply not good enough for this kind of forgiveness, for this kind of love. Well, here's my encouragement. Get used to that. Because you're not. And neither am I. And neither is anyone else in here that you might put up on a pedestal. None of us are good enough to deserve this illogical, unmerited grace, liberty, freedom that God has given us in Christ. But by the sounding of the gospel trumpet, the declaration of the good news of forgiveness and freedom in the person and work of Jesus Christ, he is the one who forgives. And it's all grace. It's all grace. And do you believe that you are forgiven? Do you believe that you're forgiven? The gospel's a scandal to many people, foolishness to many others. It doesn't fit the rules. It says, quit trying, I, I forgive you. Do you believe you're forgiven? And if you do, will you forgive as you have been forgiven? And are you willing to tell the world just how radical and illogical this grace, this jubilee really is. Let me pray for us this morning.
God, we thank you for the shadows in the Old Testament. We thank you for the shadows that you gave your people. But more than that, we thank you for the substance or the reality that they all lead to and all point to. We thank you for your son, Jesus, who lived the life that we were created to live and then died to pay the price for the life that we live instead. We thank you for him. And we ask that you would draw our hearts to him, that we would find much freedom in him, much assurance in him, for your name's sake, amen.